I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open then to Acts 6 and 7. Again, that's page 916 and starts a little earlier than that. So please have that open so we can walk through that. Let me pray as you keep your Bibles open there. Our Father, you are in heaven. Jesus, you are seated at the right hand of God. And Holy Spirit, you are present here even now in this place among us. And Spirit, I pray that you would fill me so that I might bear witness to Christ and fill me with your own power so that I might be equipped for this task and fill us with your Holy Spirit, Father, so that we might hear your word and understand it and receive it and believe it and be changed by it and live it. Help us in our time and place to bear witness for Christ. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Right? That's what Jesus said in the beginning of Acts. The resurrected Jesus, before he ascended and went to heaven, told his disciples at the beginning of Acts, you will be my witnesses. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Sarah and Tim and Katie Ann and some of the other folks at our church that have or are studying Greek would be able to tell us that the word there for witnesses, the Greek word there is martyr. And you can almost hear the word, can't you, that we get from it. And you can hear how it sounds then when you read it this way. You will be my martyrs in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and the end of the earth. Today, then, we come to the story of a man who became an ultimate witness, and in doing so, became the first martyr of the Christian church. So if you're just jumping into Acts, let me just catch you up on where we are. We've seen in Acts so far that every time the gospel pushes forward and advances, it's immediately met with brushback and pushback and opposition. And we've seen this in these last few chapters, that as the gospel advances, there comes opposition. So we've seen the apostles, for example, threatened and beaten and flogged. We've seen as the gospel goes forward, now there's sin that creeps up from within the church. As the gospel pushes forward and disciples are made, now there's need that presses on the church and threatens to divide it and tear it apart. And now in this section, this opposition reaches its climax with the stoning of a man named Stephen. But catch this. The story of Stephen is actually a really significant moment in the history of Acts, in the history of the church. It's this hinge, it's this pivot point, because from this point on, the gospel will be pushed out further and wider than it had ever been to that point. It's this significant hinge in history because from this moment on, Acts will enter sort of a new phase in the mission of Jesus Christ, in the mission of the church. Here's what I mean. Jesus had said what? You be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what he had said. He had said in Matthew 28, go and go to the nations and make disciples. This is the call of Jesus, right? But till this point... And scholars go back and forth. Some say maybe it's a few months in. Some say maybe it's a few years in. Till this point, where has the church been? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here we are, and the church is tucked in Jerusalem. 
nestled comfortably in the temple courts, meeting in Solomon's portico. You can almost picture like a a shy child that's hiding behind her mother's pant leg. So the church, in some ways, the Christians who have been called by Jesus to go make disciples of the nations and be witnesses to the ends of the earth, are nestled together in the familiar and somewhat comfortable walls of Jerusalem, near the temple courts, within Solomon's portico, in the confines of Judaism. But not after Acts 7. After Acts 7, it's sort of like toothpaste that's pushed out of the tube, and you can never put it back in again. So likewise, the church and Christians, after Acts 7, will be pushed out. They'll be kicked out of the nest. They're pushed out of the temple courts, out of Solomon's portico, out of Jerusalem, and out of Judaism, never to be able to fully return. And so what I need you to get then is, Dr. Luke, in giving us the story of Stephen, is not just giving us an interesting biography. It's not just an interesting story within early church history. Instead, he's giving us this pivot point in the history of world mission in the history of Jesus' church. In fact, one pastor, I think, rightly said, to some degree, the reason you're sitting here right now worshiping Jesus is because of what happened in Acts 7. To some degree, that the reason that Christianity wasn't limited to being a small renewal movement within Judaism, tucked away within the confines of Mount Zion, tucked away within the corners of the temple courts and the the corridors of Solomon's portico, the reason that the gospel has gone all the way to the end of the earth, including Philadelphia. From Jerusalem, this is the end of the earth. This was part of the new world, a side of the world nobody even knew existed. The reason you and I are here is because of what comes out of Acts 7 and what's born from Stephen's witness, his martyr for Jesus. Now, who's Stephen? If you were here last week, you know that we were actually introduced to Stephen last week in the top of chapter 6. In 6 verses 1 through 7, you'll remember that Stephen was one of the seven chosen to wait on the tables, to participate in the daily distribution of food to the widows. He was a servant of the church. And now, look with me, in verse 8, Uh, chapter 6, verse 8, we're reintroduced by Dr. Luke to Stephen. And here's what it says. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Catch that for a second. Remember with me that Stephen's not an apostle. He's not one of the 12. In some ways, he's an ordinary Christian like you, like me. He's just a spirit-filled man who does, however, the things that till now we've only seen the apostles do. Stephen, this ordinary person from the pews, is doing signs and wonders. So the sense is Stephen's hand is healing just like Peter's hand was healing. This ordinary Christian in some sense is doing these extraordinary things, mighty in signs and wonders indeed, mighty also in word. Because 9 tells us, 6 verse 9, that not only did he do mighty deeds, he spoke and proclaimed Jesus and a dispute rose up against him from some of the folks from the synagogue. And here's what we read in verse 10, 6 verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Right? So they can't debate him. And so now you're going to see they're going to prosecute him. 
They can't beat him, so they're going to arrest him. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Did you catch what they're doing? They can't debate him. They can't beat him. They can't outwit him. So they're going to prosecute him. They arrest him. And here are the charges they trump up against him. They say, Stephen... Stephen is always talking smack about Moses and about the law and against this holy place. In fact, we hear him all the time talking about destroying the temple, this holy place. Now, mind you, that's a serious charge. It's like a U.S. government official hearing that someone is talking smack about George Washington, burning the U.S. flag, and is planning to destroy the White House. If you heard that, you would gasp. And they gasped. The people gasped. The elders gasped. The whole council gasped at hearing the charges that were brought against Stephen. You are against Moses and against the law, against the scriptures, against this holy place. You intend to destroy the temple of God. And yet as these accusations are being hurled at him, 15 tells us this. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That something happened to Stephen's countenance. Something shone about his face. You know, there's another man in the Bible whose face shone. You know who that was? Moses. The same man that they're accusing him of speaking smack against, that same Moses had seen the glory of God so much so that his countenance changed and glory could be seen from his face. And now they're accusing him of being against Moses, and yet his face shines even as Moses' did. It's a hint to us of who is exactly on the Lord's side here. And now 7 verse 1 has the high priest asking, are these things so? It's the Supreme Court justice of the Supreme Court, and he says to Stephen, here are the charges that have been brought against you. Is it so? Tell us. Are you in fact against Moses? And are you against the law? And moreover, are you against this holy place? Do you intend to destroy the temple? And with that, from verse 2 all the way to verse 53, Stephen speaks. Now, needless to say for all of you, that's a lot of ground for us to cover today. In fact, our intention is to go from 6 verse 8 all the way to 8 verse 1. So because that's such a large portion, I'm not going to go through that verse by verse, right? And all God's people said amen to that. I know, I know what you were thinking, just so you know. In fact, this week, just to tell you, at GCM, my wife told me that the group gathered together and they read through this and they said, oh, poor Pastor Jay, he's got to preach through all these verses. And immediately, Shainu said the first thought in her mind was, poor us, we're the ones who have to listen to you preach through all those verses. Shainu has the spiritual gift of encouragement, just in case you were wondering. So, I don't want to go through this verse by verse. In fact, I just want to give you three things from Stephen's speech. Here's the first. Three things Stephen shows us. First, Stephen shows us 
that God is not confined to any one place. Stephen shows us that God is not confined to any one place. What have they just charged him with? Are you against this place? This holy place, the temple? Do you intend to destroy this place? And Stephen's response is to show them God is not confined to any one place. Stephen gives what, if I remember right, is the longest speech in Acts. And Stephen, from verse 2 all the way to 53, is going to give a detailed recounting of Israel's history. You know that phrase like selling ice to an Eskimo? The point of that phrase is to say you don't have to do that because ice is everywhere for an Eskimo. So likewise, you almost go, why would he give this detailed recounting of Israel's history to the leaders of Israel who know the detailed recounting of Israel's history? Why would he spend 50 somewhat verses, the largest speech in Acts, to walk them through line by line a story they know like the back of their hand? Point after point, reminding them of Abraham as though they hadn't heard of Abraham, and Joseph as though they didn't know who Joseph was, and the story of Moses as they didn't know who Moses was. Why this long speech to a people who know their history well? But you see, that's exactly it. Stephen is trying to show them that they, in fact, don't know their own history. Because if they did, they would not center their entire lives and their faith and their religion around a temple, around a building made from human hands. No, they would have known if they knew their history that God has never been confined to one place. That God's dealings and his activity among his people have never been confined to a zip code in Zion. That it's never been confined to Solomon's portico or to the temple courts. It's never been tucked into Jerusalem or fit in Israel. God has never been, your history would tell you, Stephen says, squeezed into one place. And so he starts with Abraham, verses 2 all the way through 8. He starts in 2 with Abraham and he says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, where? Now catch this, the God of glory, the glory of God is what was closely associated with the temple. The temple was the place where the glory of God came. But now Abraham had seen that very glory of God, the one you've so closely tied to this building. Abraham already saw that glory of God where? When Abraham was in Israel? When he was tucked away in Mount Zion? When he was within the temple courts? No, verse 2 the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. You hear what he's saying? If you took out your map today, that's Iraq. And Stephen is saying, the God of incredible glory had appeared to Abraham when he was in Iraq. Where was he? Long before there was a temple, long before there was a holy place, the glory of God appeared in Iraq, in Iraq. God gave him, moreover, he goes on in those verses to say, the sign of the covenant, the sign, circumcision, the one sign that sets the people of Yahweh apart from all the people. You know how precious baptism is to Christians. He says, well, God gave Abraham this sign when? When he didn't own a foot of land in the promised land. And yet that didn't stop God from giving the most precious covenant sign to Abraham. Do you hear his point? No, don't you see? 
If you knew your history, you would know God was never confined to a zip code in Zion, to the temple courts, to Jerusalem or Mount Zion. God was with Abraham when he was in Iraq. And then he goes on, verse 9, to Joseph. And he tells them from 9 through 19 about Joseph's story. And he tells them Joseph's brothers sold him to where? Egypt. God-forsaken, pagan, Gentile, idol-worshipping, sun-god-ra, Pharaoh, Egypt. And yet, verse 9, what? But God was with him. Where? In Egypt. You see, he's recounting the history to say, isn't it obvious God has never been squeezed into Zion? Never fit just in Israel. He hasn't been some God of just the Holy Land. In fact, he's been with Abraham when he was in Iraq, and he's been with Joseph when he was in Egypt. And then verse 20, he goes to Moses. And from 20 to 43, he's going to speak about Moses. He's going to park and camp out on Moses. Because why? They've accused him of being against Moses. So he will spend the great deal of his speech on Moses. And he starts by recounting Moses' story. And he says what? Moses started in Egypt, but then if you know the story, he had to run. And he went into exile. And where did he go? He went to Midian. If you had a map today, you'd see that'd be a part of what we would call Saudi Arabia. And you know what happened? God who showed up to Abraham in Iraq and God who showed up to Joseph in Egypt, that same God showed up to Moses when he was in Saudi Arabia. And the same God who appeared in glory in Iraq to Abraham appeared to Moses, and there, in Saudi Arabia, not on Mount Zion, not in Jerusalem, not within the temple courts, there was given the revelation above all revelations. Where did God reveal his personal name? Where did he tell the people for the first time, I am who I am? Not while they were in David's city. While Moses was in Saudi Arabia, you heard Yahweh. For the first time. And so much so. Do you remember what happened in that story? He tells us this amazing thing in verse 33. That when God showed up to Moses in 33. It says. Then the Lord said to him. Take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing. Is holy ground. Now after our friends have studied Greek. And then they go on to study Hebrew. They'll be able to teach us that this can be translated not just holy ground, but holy land. Which means what? That the holy land isn't just confined to Israel, or tucked away in Jerusalem, or squeezed into Mount Zion, but that Saudi Arabia had become holy land. Why? Because holy land is wherever the Holy One is. Wherever God is, is holy land. See, this is what Stephen is pressing on them. Their entire confidence had been in a holy place. It had been squeezed into some walls and to some patterns and some rituals and some things that were handed down, good things. But all their trust became in a holy place, and Stephen is pointing them to a holy person. You've trusted in a holy place. You've forgotten the holy person. And ultimately, the point of all of Stephen's martyr, all of his witness, is to point them to this reality, that ultimately, the holy person 
in whom the presence of God could most fully be found is Jesus of Nazareth. That Jesus of Nazareth is where God can be most fully found. You see, Stephen is saying the same kinds of things Jesus was saying. Jesus had gotten in trouble for this exact thing. When Jesus was on the trial for his life, they brought the same charges against Jesus. You said you would destroy this temple. You're against the temple, against the holy place. And Stephen now bearing witness for Jesus sounds exactly like Jesus. And here's the truth. Jesus was not against the temple. Jesus was the fulfillment of the temple. See, that's the point. You don't need the temple anymore because the entire purpose of the temple was to get you ready for Jesus. It's sort of like if I took training wheels off of a bike, I'm not anti-training wheels. I couldn't care less about training wheels. The point is training wheels exist for a purpose, which is to prepare you to learn to ride. And once you ride, you have no more purpose for the training wheels. You can throw them away because they've served its point. If you saw a 45-year-old man riding down the street with training wheels, you would say, brother, you need to get rid of that. You don't need that anymore. That's Stephen's point. I'm not anti-temple. I'm telling you the temple was training wheels to prepare us for one, but now he's here, and so we don't need the temple. He has come, and the entire point of the temple was to prepare you for him. You see, the temple served its purpose. There was a season, a time, where if you wanted to go to God, you would go to the temple. If you needed to offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins, you went to the temple. If you needed the high priest to pray for you, intercede for you, you went to the temple. If you wanted to invite the nations to your God, you invited them to the temple. But now Jesus came. And when Jesus has come, if you want to get to God, you go to Jesus. If you need forgiveness for your sins, a sacrifice, you go to Jesus. If you need a high priest to pray for you, Hebrews tells us Jesus is the one who carries his people on his shoulders and his hearts and bring them before the Father, you go to Jesus. And now our message to the nations is if you want to get to God, go to Jesus. You see, for a long time, if you wanted to invite the nations, you would go to them and tell them to come to the temple. But now that Jesus has come, we go to the nations and say, you don't have to come to us. We've come to you. And we tell you to go to God. You simply need to go to Jesus. He's the point. That means that holy land is wherever you are when you go to Jesus. Wherever you are, where you go to Jesus is holy ground. I can tell you, eight years ago, I went to Israel. I was at the Wailing Wall. I touched the wall. Two feet beyond that was this spot, the temple, where the glory of God had been. And I can tell you for sure, the ground underneath your feet right now is every bit as sacred as that spot. Because the most holiest place on the planet is wherever you're standing when your soul finally goes to Jesus. I'm telling you, this spot of earth right here at 525 Welsh Road, this is holy ground. Holy land, if even now your soul will just go to Jesus. Because our confidence is not in a holy place, but in a holy person. And Stephen is pushing his hearers to understand that they don't have to cling to the temple anymore like a shy child that's hiding behind her mother's leg. 
Instead, they can push out, they can step out, they can do what he said in Matthew 28 and make disciples of the nations. They can do what he said in Acts 1 and bear witness to him to the ends of the earth because God is not limited to any one place. He's saying to them, if you knew your history, you'd know he was with us when we were in Iraq. And he was with us when we were in Egypt. And he was with us when we were in Saudi Arabia. And as you read the unfolding story of Acts, Soon enough, wouldn't you know, the Holy Land would change. And now there would be Holy Land in Samaria by Acts 8. And soon enough, there'll be Holy Land in Antioch. And after that, there'll be Holy Land in Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth. And there'll be Holy Land in Rome. And when Acts 28 is done and our chapter in this story begins, there'll be Holy Land in China and there'll be Holy Land in Africa and there'll be Holy Land in India and there'll be Holy Land in what was known to them as the New World. And there'll be Holy Land in Philadelphia. You see, if we hear Stephen, he's saying to us today, brothers, sisters, don't be afraid to push past the places where you're familiar and comfortable Don't feel that you have to experience God and that these four walls are the only place and you've got to recreate all this somewhere else because the scriptures are teaching us you can go. For God is not confined to any one place but is with his people in all the places where they'll go. He will be with his people in all the places he sends them. First, he shows us that God has never been confined to any one place. Second, Stephen shows us this, that rejecting Jesus is rejecting God, in parentheses, as Israel was prone to do. The second thing Stephen shows us in his speech is that rejecting Jesus is rejecting God as Israel was prone to do. He tells his accusers, listen, You refuse to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And then he tells them their story to say this. But God's people not accepting God's chosen one? There's nothing new with that either. In fact, Stephen's trying to press on them. If you know your history, you know you are doing right now exactly what your fathers did before you. He's telling his hearers. You know the details of your story, but if you knew it well, you'd know your rejection of Jesus right now is exactly what your fathers did before you. If you just knew your history, you'd know you're doing the same thing. He recounts the story. What? Verse 9 was Joseph. Joseph was this favored one. And what happened? His brothers hated him and rejected him and sold him into slavery. Or then there's Moses, verse 25, and he recounts the story of Moses. Moses was this chosen one, but do you remember the story? Moses one day saw an Egyptian oppressing an Israelite. So he runs to that man's defense, kills the Egyptian. And when he does, he thinks that the people will see that God has called him to be their redeemer, their savior. He's come. And yet the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting against one another, and he calls out to them, and he says, brothers, what are you doing fighting against each other? And what do the people say? What did those two Hebrews say? Do they say, alas, after 400 years, the Lord has sent us a redeemer, a rescuer, our ruler has finally come. No, they respond by saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? That's his point. Look at verse 35 of chapter 7. He recounts Moses' story. This Moses, 
whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. He's recounting Moses to say what? This Moses, the one that you're accusing me of being against. This Moses is the one that was a redeemer and ruler for the people who stretched out his hand and parted the sea and they walked out of slavery. This Moses is the one who prophesied there'd come another one better, more, just like me. This Moses is the one who received the living word of God. And how did your fathers respond to this Moses? 39, our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. I mean, the point, the connection is so obvious, it barely needs to be said. Stephen's saying to them, the very man that God had chosen and set them free and redeemed them and delivered them and stretched out his arms to save them from slavery, the very man who brought them the living words of God, that man they refused, rejected, and in fact, their hearts turned and rejected God as well. Does it need to be said that you are doing exactly what your fathers did? Does it need to be said, I'm not the one rejecting Moses? You are. In fact, you're not against my words here. Moses said there would come a prophet like me. You see what he's saying to them? If you knew your history, you would know you are doing to Jesus exactly what your fathers did to Moses. Because he's saying to them, there was another ruler and redeemer. There was another who stretched out his hands to save his people from slavery. Another who did signs and wonders. Another who not just brought the living word, who was the word of God. And you betrayed him and murdered him. In fact, that's what he says in 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You hear what he's saying? If you knew your history, this detailed recounting from verse 2 to 53, you'd know you have done with Jesus what your fathers did to Moses. In fact, the one thing he'd add is what you've done is worse because they persecuted the prophets and you killed the one to whom all the prophets were pointing. All the prophets were pointing to the righteous one. And you murdered and betrayed him. That's about as much as they could bear to hear. They couldn't stomach him anymore. In fact, soon enough, they would close their ears and not listen to another word out of his mouth. They have had enough. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. 
and they ground their teeth at him. You can picture like wild beasts, like wolves staring at a sheep. So is this synagogue now assembled against Stephen. And while they are snarling at him, and while their teeth are grinding at him, and while they're enraged, and while they are filled with murderous hatred, Stephen, the text tells us, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And there this spirit-filled man sees what Abraham saw in Iraq and sees what Moses saw in Saudi Arabia. And now Stephen sees the glory of God. 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What Abraham saw in Iraq and what Moses saw in Saudi Arabia, he now sees. He sees the glory of God. He looks up while stones are being hurled at his head. And he sees the heavens opened. And he sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there's this tiny detail Did you catch it? He sees Jesus doing what? Standing at the right hand of God. It's a tiny detail, but it's a detail we catch because everywhere else, Jesus is doing what at the right hand of God? He's sitting at the right hand of God. In fact, that's the point the writer of the Hebrews will make. The whole point is, unlike every high priest who has to keep standing because his work's not done, Jesus gets to sit. It's finished. He's always seated at the right hand of God. But as Stephen is being stoned to death and bearing witness for Christ, he looks up into the heavens and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We're not told exactly what that is. Can I tell you what I think it is? I'll tell you what I think it is. I grew up in a different culture. I grew up in an Eastern culture. And and, and in the culture I grew up in, can I tell you from the moment I was a child, I had this thing, which is every time an adult walked into a room, I stood. It's part of that whole honor-shame culture, and so there was this great deal of honor given. I can't remember a time in my life when an elder walked into the room where I didn't stand. And if I didn't stand, I heard about it later. If dad walked into the room, if an uncle walked into the room, if a pastor walked into the room, I stood, as did all my cousins, all my siblings. Every time they came in, we stood. Can I tell you, in all my years of life, the inverse never happened. And I can't even fathom a way in which it would. I would never enter into a room and suddenly my parents would stand up. I mean, it doesn't even compute. For many of you, that doesn't make sense. I can't even imagine a scenario in which one of us would walk into a room and an elder would stand. Jesus of Nazareth at the right hand of God as Stephen was being stoned to death, stood. And here's what I think. In Luke's volume one, he had said, when they come to kill you and drag you into the synagogues, don't be afraid. God will give you the Holy Spirit and tell you in that moment what to say. And he did. And then he said, don't be afraid of those who can destroy your body. Don't worry about that. And then he said, and I tell you this, Whoever acknowledges me before men, him before my Father will I acknowledge. And whoever denies me before men, before my Father, him will I deny. So here's what I think. 
I think in the very moment in which earth was condemning Stephen, Jesus was commending him. And in the very moment in which earth was rejecting Stephen, Jesus stood to receive him. And in the very moment when his ears heard their murderous rage, one moment later, Jesus, standing with arms outstretched, would say to this man, Well done, good and faithful servant. Here, come, is the kingdom prepared for you. I think in the very moment in which Stephen on earth with stones hurled at his body and head, was saying to the people, men of Israel, this is Jesus. I think at that very moment, Jesus stood to say, Father, this is Stephen. He belongs to us. I purchased him with my blood. Brother and sister, weak as we are, sinful as we are, can you imagine the Lord Jesus receiving us? Can you imagine that one moment after, like Luke says, you fall asleep to this world, you will wake your eyes up and you will see Jesus' arms outstretched to receive you? Is that not worth we live for? And is that not worth dying for? Stephen's whole life bore witness to Jesus. You think of this man's life. In his life, he bore witness to Jesus. He did what? He served. He was a servant because his master did not think it too high of him to wrap a towel around his waist and bow down and wash the feet of his disciples. So Stephen did not think it too high of him to be a waiter at the table of the widows. In his life, he looked like Jesus. In his speech, he sounded like Jesus. Jesus was tried for the same thing Stephen was tried for. Why are you talking against the temple? In his suffering, he looked like Jesus. When he was standing on trial, surely he could have looked up to the heavens and said, Jesus, you know what it's like to have people bring up false charges and try you and bring up all these accusations against you. All the way into his death, he looked like Jesus and bore witness to his Christ. 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Who said that first? Jesus from the cross had said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And from the cross, he had said, Father, receive my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And now Stephen is saying to Jesus what Jesus had said to the Father which gives you an incredible clue of who Jesus is. What Jesus had said to God the Father, Stephen is now saying to the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord Jesus, forgive these men, for they don't know what they don't. Don't hold this sin against them. And with that, he falls asleep and wakes up to the Lord. Third and finally, and I'll spend two minutes on this, Stephen shows us the impact of a faithful witness. He shows us that God is not confined to any one place, and he shows us that rejecting Jesus is rejecting God, and Stephen shows us the impact of a faithful witness. Here's the last thing I just want to say. What came about from this? What came about from Stephen's witness, from his martyr? You know, nobody was cut to the heart. You don't get Acts 2. Nobody came to him and said, what then shall we do? 
There's no baptisms, no 3,000 added to the church that day. No one gets saved, no one gets converted, no one gets cut to the heart. No one is moved except to rage. No one responds. And Stephen dies. And living on the plane of human life with human eyes, you would almost go, what a waste. You'd almost go, if you were in Acts 7, you would go, what could the church have been if Stephen was still around? I mean, a man that gifted and that godly, what an untimely and early death. Wouldn't we have been able to do so much more if Stephen was still here? But from the perspective of God and in his wisdom, would you consider God used Stephen's sermon and his stoning to push the church out, to squeeze the paste out of the tube, never to be put back in again. Because of Acts 7, the church wakes up to embrace the reality that the gospel really is for all people in all places, for God is not confined to any one place. You see, from this moment on in Acts, they can no longer cling to the temple like a shy child clinging to her mother's pant leg. Instead, this moment pushes them out so that they must step out, and when they do, Hiding under mom's leg, now they know father will be with us everywhere we go. You see, from this moment on in Acts, Jerusalem actually fades to the background. You don't hear much of Jerusalem anymore. And from this moment on in Acts, now the gospel will go to Samaria by Acts 8. And before you know it, it'll be in Antioch. And soon thereafter, it'll be in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth and Thessalonica and Berea, and all and on and on. It'll get to Rome by the end of the earth, by the end of 28. And, and do you know, friends, who God used to take the gospel to all those places? He's actually right here in this story. He shows up in 58. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. He witnessed Stephen's witness. And I can guarantee you it did something to his soul. Jesus would show up to him and I guarantee you he never forgot what he saw and what he heard from Stephen's mouth. Let me end with this quote from a, a Bible study that I found. It simply says this, Stephen had a very short ministry but through his impact on Paul, he has influenced millions. So we must remember as we minister that we might be the instrument of reaching someone who will be much more productive for Christ than we. Yes, reaching just one person might be the main thing we do for the kingdom in our entire lifetime. But with God's help and wisdom, it will be enough. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we confess you and acknowledge you and your son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Messiah and our Savior, our ruler and our redeemer. We confess you as the living word of God, and we do so tucked into these four walls. And we pray that as we go from here today, the Spirit might empower us to make that same confession beyond these walls, to know that God is certainly not confined to this one place but that we might bear witness and know that in our lifetime you might do great things through our martyr for you, our witness for you, 
in all the places you send us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.